Welcome back to another special edition of Goldman Sachs Exchanges, Great Investors. I'm Tony Pascarello, Global Head of Hedge Fund Coverage within our global banking and markets business. And today, I'm delighted to speak with my friend Rick Reeder, Chief Investment Officer of Global Fixed Income for BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager. Rick also heads the fundamental fixed income business as well as the global allocation investment team. Rick and his team are responsible for about $2.4 trillion of assets. So today we'll be discussing Rick's career, his views on the markets, and his perspective on asset allocation in the current environment. Rick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tony. You and I have known each other for a while, but really only in the context of your time at BlackRock. And can you start by telling us how you got your start in the markets and perhaps one of the lessons that you learned in your early years, in your formative years, that you still carry with you today? Sure. And by the way, thanks for having me on this. I came into the industry, I worked for SunTrust Banks as a financial analyst, and I was actually accepted a job, which I tell my kids, if you accept something, you have to do it. And I accepted a job as a financial analyst at a business school. I went to work at the time, it was Chemical Bank, now JP Morgan. And so I was going to be a financial analyst and somebody in a training program at EF Hutton, I don't know if anybody remembers sure. that, they said, why don't you try trading? You know, you like dynamic things, you like sports, try it. And anyway, so I said, I'll give it a shot. And I remember calling my dad and saying, I'm going to try this. And he said, that's not a career. Trading's not a career. <laughs> so anyway, I'm still doing it 35 years, 36 years later. But anyway, so that, you know, talk about nodes in your life, like that person changed my whole life. Like sure. I, and I don't know if I'd been successful as a financial analyst, but there are a couple of things that I think were incredibly important to me early in my career. One, And maybe it's actually in business school where we had a presentation by a guy who ran Golden Nugget Casino. And I'll never forget this. He said to me, so I asked a question and he said, how do you think casinos make money? And I said, the odds are in their favor. And he said, the odds aren't that much in our favor. You know, we had 2%, 3% if you're playing craps or blackjack. He said, people come to Atlantic City with $200. When they lose it, they leave. Yep. And I've always thought about what happens. You oscillate around trends. And if you get the general regime right, try and oscillate and try and buy and sell relative to how the markets oscillate, but you can't lose $200. And I've always thought, and that's been with me for my whole career, I can't hit the down button. What are your hedges? And so it's funny, it was an after-school thing at Wharton. That, and, and then the second one was when I first started trading. You know, you study in school, and I bought this bond. I knew I was right. Anyway, and I just kept getting hit. And then all of a sudden, I realized I owned all of them. And I lost a lot of money, and I almost cost myself for the year. And uh, anyway, it gave me this, like, you have to figure out, you may be right. We're, and I would say this in managing money, we're not in the business of being right. We're in the business of generating return for clients, and that could be really different. Right. And if markets don't think you're right, it doesn't really matter right. because you got to operate them. So anyway, those two things taught me a lot about risk management and your perception of where the world is and how people think the world is are arguably more important than being right. You flash forward today, so you're managing funds that are largely unconstrained, meaning you can go most anywhere across stocks and bonds, across geographic divides. You can use derivatives where you see fit. So just in this context, I guess I have two questions. One, so many markets, so many moving parts. How do you keep track of it all? And then two, how are you thinking about your asset allocation mix right now? The cool thing, I mean, I'm usually blessed to be able to run unconstrained because you can venture to where you think the alpha is and where you think the opportunity is. And it changes. Like this year, it's about using derivatives. Like when volatility drops, all of a sudden you use a lot of optionality in your portfolio. Last year, you couldn't do that at all. And what you do last year, I mean, one of the good calls, we just like get the cash quickly you know, get your duration down, get your risk down. But the beauty about being unconstrained is you try and figure out where the big pockets of alpha are, and then how do you manage your portfolio to try and optimize return, but manage the downside. So anyway, I read a ton. I've got great teams. One thing is I've learned about having great counterparties. 
is once you get into the mix with them and they understand these are the things you look at or that you like or they fit how you think about convexity, et cetera. But all those things, and I read a crazy amount. I mean, I just try and particularly on the weekends, which my wife finds socially engaging. But anyway, I do a, a ton of reading today. Listen, I think there's a couple of things that are really powerful. I think the economy's in pretty good shape. And you know, I was thinking about it the other day. The economy was operating, if you take an eight-cylinder car, we were operating at 10 cylinders before because of the amount of gearing that was in the system through all the stimulus. I think today we're operating at a six-cylinder. We're a bit below, but it's pretty good. So, you know, what are you doing? How do you think about it today? Carry is super, I mean, incredibly attractive. You don't have to take a lot of risk to get carry. And now one of the things I think about is your upside convexity and equities today is pretty powerful. So one of the things we think about positioning today, the economy's pretty good. You've got a high rate regime that will probably be with us for a while. And then you're talking about vol is really cheap. Big part of our expression today is carry really well, keep some ballast in the portfolio, get some upside convexity. You can buy it cheaply. And then quite frankly, you can manage your downside because you can use vol so effectively today. Feels like a very good setup for what you do. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's pretty rare in my career. I always talk about when you ask people, when people ask about fixed income, what's your favorite investment today? Commercial paper. Like I bought a big chunk of commercial paper. It's 660 yield from a single A issuer. That's unbelievable. Mm. Like we, now I can think about, okay, my beta bucket, I don't have to spend my beta on buying, you know, deep down the cap stack or deep credit stressed entities. I can sit in no duration risk, no beta risk, and then I could use my beta bucket, my duration buckets for other things. So it's a pretty cool opportunity to do that. You've got a huge work rate, and I think we'll come back to this. I think you also have huge intellectual curiosity, and presumably you're always learning and you're always fine-tuning. Over the years, how has your investment philosophy and your approach to risk evolved? First of all, I think investing is the coolest industry you could ever be in because it's so dynamic. And what I read last weekend is relevant, but not as relevant as what I read this weekend. But one of the things that's evolved is your ability to use data, technology, and systems to really, I mean, I, you know, I would say over the years, we do so much around data assimilation, so much around portfolio, sophisticated portfolio construction. My closest friends at Blackhawk run our, we call it risk and quantitative analytics. I'm on with them. Probably, they probably hate this, but 6 a.m. on Sunday mornings, pinging them about, can you send this one? Can you send that one? But now we have so much data at our disposal to help us manage the portfolio. So, you know, I'll say a couple of things. One, being really thoughtful about your risk and optimizing risk, optimizing where you could get return relative to your risk, I think has been big. Using system signals has been really big. And then, like I say, one thing I've learned as we manage more portfolios and different things is your teams. I've learned over my career, probably through tons of mistakes, make sure you have the right people so that you can delegate and you could say, where I say to people, get our FX across portfolios. We want to be in more EM, less DM. And anyway, your teams can be amazingly effective. And you know, if we get in the right mindset and talk about regimes we're operating in, then you know, it's make sure you're allocating and delegating effectively. Every cycle is different, of course, but the COVID era has been extraordinary in so many regards. And even though we're a ways on for 2020, I think it's still with us in a lot of respects. So how have the recent years shape the way you invest or think about risk taking? Tony, I think one thing I've learned through going through too many crises in my career is the first thing you realize is liquidity. So I'll never forget, you saw this in a way, but certainly in COVID, March and April, like all of a sudden there's no bid. Like I remember getting hammered and owning AAA securities because the only thing people could sell. So like AAAs were getting pulverized. You still want to own those assets, but you realize a huge part of what we do 
is break our portfolios into liquidity buckets. I got to make sure what I call tier one liquidity. I got plenty of it. And if I have enough of it, I can go into things that are less liquid. So COVID was an incredible reminder of make sure your portfolio is durable and your liquidity is foundational in terms of what you're doing. By the way, Zoom and WebEx have been an outgrowth of something. So now all our meetings are pretty incredible now. There's a fine line between you want people in a room together to really get some energy and talk about things. But then having people from Europe and Asia and doing global meetings has been incredible. Like we have in some meetings, hundreds of people, different backgrounds, different perspectives. Anyway, that's been, I think, an outgrowth of that's been really powerful around how we run everything. And then the last thing I will say, I think technology and healthcare, you know, you watch this play out with Eli Lilly recently and the world is changing and healthcare longevity faster than I think people think. The ability to deconstruct DNA, you think about how quickly these vaccines came up. Anyway, I think healthcare and technology, they're two core foundations for what I believe in investing in today. And I think COVID reinforced. I mean, you look at the performances here, those different entities, companies that are investing in R&D and can throw off enough free cash flow to reinvest in R&D. Like I'm convinced, particularly from an equity perspective, if you're in, you know, the companies I think are the fast rivers of cash flow in the next two years, three years, five years are the ones that are reinvesting in R&D. And COVID proved that out like an incredibly rapid fashion. So let's pivot back to the current macro environment on the Fed. We think they're done. The market basically thinks they're done. But if we look ahead to next year, now the discussion is around forward cuts and this idea of preemptive easing. So where are you on that? And if you had to hazard a guess today, when does the cutting cycle begin and, and why? So I think first thing you have to assume or that you have to factor into your model is I still think there's a 15% chance they're hiking more. And I don't think you can write off in a world of deglobalization, in a world of higher wage costs, I don't think you can write off that they've got more to do. I'm pretty 50-50 on whether you get another 25 or not. But by the way, it's not that relevant. We talk about we were doing 75s sure. at a time. So I think there's a 15% chance they got more to do. And by the way, I think there's a 10% chance that there's some exogenous shock in the world. We live in a relatively different, unstable geopolitical dynamic than we have relative to the last two decades. So I think it's a 10% chance something on the unexpected happens. Okay, so now you take that, you got 15, you got 10, so you got 75. So I think your base case is they start cutting in the second half of next year and quite frankly, in a deliberate manner. So let's say that's 50. And then there's another 25 that they got to move. They start moving in and around the first quarter. You know, one man's opinion, I think this Fed would like to be deliberate in the cutting. And listen, I think they're ultimately going to have to bring the funds rate down to a more normalized two, two and a half percent level. But I think they want to be deliberate and let these things work themselves through. One man's opinion, I wouldn't have gone as high as they are today. Right. And, but I think they want to be patient and let it marinate through the system for a while. So this, I think, segues to my next question, which is, if we were to spend a minute on the deficit and the debt load, on one hand, the U.S. has $30 trillion of debt on the books that we just discussed, pretty high interest rates. And as our friend Stan Druckenmiller has pointed out, in the context of entitlements and an aging population, it's not hard to get concerned about the debt burden that will be on the shoulders of our children or children's children. At the same time, as you've pointed out, the asset side of the equation has also grown hugely in recent years, which I think doesn't get as much attention. So where do you come out on all this? So it's hard to disagree with Stan. And I agree with him on the size of the debt's too big. 
The size of the debt is almost untenable. However, we're at a very different point in time. Like you said, the system is delevered. And I always think about it. when you go through like the financial crisis or the European debt crisis, there's four parts of an economy in terms of debt, consumer, financial, corporate, and government. Mm -hmm. And you think about, you can blow up if one of the four is too high. But today, the individual is actually pretty good shape. The consumer is largely delevered. The financial system is delevered and corporate has turned their debt out. So the debt sits at the government level. That's a pretty fortunate point in time in terms of to run a bigger debt because you can fund it. You can fund government debt because you're not necessarily having to fund the others. So point one. Point two, I've always found when I've invested in credit or equity or anything, I think there's only three things that matter for investing. Leverage, liquidity, cash flow. Leverage, liquidity, cash flow. If your leverage is high, but you got plenty of liquidity and your cash flow is high, you can actually deal with it. You can't, if your liquidity goes, it's over. Sure. But you think about if you take a step back and you use that as your set of parameters. Today, if nominal GDP stays high, I mean, we ran at 12% in 21, 7% last year. If your nominal GDP is high and your cost of debt is reasonable, this is part of why I think the Fed has to bring rates down. We can keep it for a year. Let's say you bring rate down because today the government's relying way too much on bills. Bills for years were zero. They're five and a half. You're funding, what is it, 300 billion a week gross. At five and a half, it's too high. That's your CP trade. Totally. So, totally. So, so you think about, okay, so what has to happen? Now you think about my debt burden. It's all about debt service. Can I service my debt? If the rate comes down and your nominal GDP stays up higher than your debt, and this is part of why Italy has had a problem for years. How do you keep nominal GDP up to offset the cost of an overburdened debt system? U.S. can do it. Like you can keep as a reserve currency in the world, you can fund yourself you got to keep the debt at a reasonable level, hope inflation cooperates. But nominal GDP, as long as nominal GDP is up and inflation is part of that, you can outrun the debt. So if I say one thing, because I get really passionate on this subject, mm -hmm. we had no productivity enhanced. So, the, so companies are spending on R&D. For the first time, the government is using their fiscal in effective way. Look at the CHIPS Act, the IRA. If you can stimulate nominal GDP, and you're seeing maybe in an excessive way this year, if the money that you've borrowed as opposed to it being in sunk cost initiatives that don't have velocity to them, it doesn't work. But if you actually get R&D from the government spend and the corporate spend, you can create enough nominal GDP and you can outrun the debt. What Stan says is right because of entitlement and otherwise. Sure. But boy, I think if it's done effectively, and part of why electing officials for two-year terms is not the exact right way to do it, but I still think within the phenomenon, U.S. is the most adaptive, reflexive economy in the world. Like I said, but the Fed has to get the cost of the debt down at some point over the next year or so. So I want to jump on a point you just made within that, which is, so this year, not a lot has necessarily gone as expected. The biggest story along that path for me has been just the incredible durability of the U.S. economy alongside, of course, the inflection lower and inflation. So let's discuss some of the work you've done, the structural work on the economy and some of the major changes that are now playing out, which I think your word choice has been from carburetors to compilers. So what's there? Part of why I did this presentation, carburetors to compilers. So if you think about two, three decades ago, the entire economy was built there. I mean, you look at the big cap stocks. It was oil stocks. It was General Motors. It was the big autos. But it was a cyclical, commodity-oriented economy that moved in a very volatile fashion. By the way, China exhibits a lot of this sure. today. It's a goods-oriented, trade-oriented economy. U.S. economy is 70% services, 70% consumption. That ends up being incredibly stable. So when you think about, by the way, you talk about consumption, when you have an unemployment rate at 3.5%, over 4% wage growth, 
your ability to continue to consume is extraordinary. By the way, Jan Hatzi has got this unbelievably right. When you break down growth and you say, okay, how do I create recession or something significant as opposed to negative 1% for a couple of quarters after 12s and 7s of nominal GDP? Now you try and break it down. You look at if you have a service economy and a consumption-oriented economy, your goods economy's got to fall off the cliff. Your sure. capex has got to get destroyed to offset the other. And part of I did this presentation called the polyurethane economy, like that those Tempur-Pedic beds, because it's incredibly flexible. And by the way, like one part of the economy can get hurt, and the rest, like those Tempur-Pedic, those commercials of the wine <laughs> and people jumping on the other side of the bed. If the commercial real estate market is impaired or small banks are impaired as they are, the flexibility and adaptive nature of the U.S. economy, talk about technology, independent energy production, it's pretty incredible. It's pretty incredible. And by the way, I think a recession, when I grew up, a recession was ugly. You had food lines, you had gas, it was bad. I just think the U.S. economy is much more durable than people give credit to. Let's spend a minute on AI. I think we'd both agree it's a quantum leap with immense structural implications. But how do you prosecute your view on it in the portfolio today? It's hard. I think there's some exciting things happening in places like India and a lot of these areas where you think they are going to be the investment of the next three to five, 10 years. Oftentimes, they don't provide themselves in the public markets in the way you want to. How much semiconductor or GPU investment can you make today is pretty hard without creating a skewed portfolio. What are we doing with it? We're trying to find businesses that are tangentially related. We're doing more on things where you can make early to second stage investments in the funds we can do it to get deeper into that space. I've also spent a bunch of time thinking through, I think, large language models. I would be so systematized that it's actually who has the data will win. And so we're spending much more time thinking about if you have a proprietary data set that you can exploit through large language models, that is those companies and there's a bunch of companies in those spaces that have unique proprietary data sets that I think will be the winners because they'll be able to exploit the ability to tap into that data. So a few different directions. We're spending a lot of time thinking through portfolio construction, data assimilation. That is incredibly exciting. We're at the early stages of doing that. And then we're also thinking about people resourcing. I saw a study that said, I think it was 45% of the jobs would be augmented or replaced in some way. And we're just trying to think about, are we the most efficient about how we think about that within our infrastructure? So there's so many different angles. I don't know how many, I think I've set up three subcommittees within our business to try and figure it out. Wow. And hopefully we're throwing enough spaghetti against the wall that we get more right than not. So here's a question I've been dying to ask. On one hand, if one were to read your monthly deck, you and your team do an enormous amount of work on the long-term outlook for the economy and, and for the markets. And at the same time, you're a true active manager, and I think you're trading most every single day in one form or another. And so how do you balance trying to generate alpha on a short-term trading-oriented basis alongside generating alpha on this kind of longer-term, more investing-oriented basis? So first of all, I'm convinced I haven't figured it out. And <laughs> that's hard. And uh, by the way, every cycle is different. Every regime is different. So what we're trying to do, the reason why I do these monthlies they're my own therapy around, you know, maybe I'm too slow to do it on the fly. But I feel like if I stare at thousands of charts and tables, like you get these aha moments, like dollar yen is here and BOJ did this and the yield curve control is here and all of a sudden, and why is this cross trading here? But I feel like I've got to take all of it and try and assimilate it in my own head. And then if you do it okay and you come up with enough aha moments, you can take the big portion of the portfolio and get it moving in a certain direction. And then I spend the rest of the month tweaking it. And we talked about things oscillate around the mean or around a trend. And then you try and tweak it relative to that. And the markets, 
I think more so than I've ever seen, markets move to extremes. I think there's been a democratization of information that gets everybody moving. Like they get the information and everybody moves. And I think the ability to fade a lot of those moves and then just do it effectively in the market, I think can be really attractive. So we try and keep the boat pointed in a certain direction and then work your way around it. You know, when, by the way, as I love trading the vol markets. Sure. And when volatility, you know, there is rate vol is crazy highs. You can sell it. Equity vol is super cheap. On a historic basis, you can buy it. You can create, carry, and manage your convexity. So I know I like when the markets are moving and they're fun. The worst part about markets is when they get illiquid and you can't transact because I believe in this thesis called make a little bit of money a lot of times. You know, you can create little O1s constantly, protect your downside. And then if you get your regime so you can asset allocate effectively, then you can create durable alpha over long periods of time. Again, you know, get up a bad quarter. But at least we got to make sure the boat's going in the right way and then try and trade around it. All right. So this is another question I can't wait to hear the answer to, which is you famously get up around 3.30 a.m. every workday. And so how do you do that? I don't think you're going to bed really early. Do you drink buckets of coffee? How do you do it? So first of all, maybe I've gotten older because now it's 3.45 in the morning. <laughs> but I do it on the weekend suit on and whatever. I don't know that. I don't think it's a skill or... I'm pretty energized about it. I think there's a lot to do in life. And I have these signs all over my house that say, work hard, play hard, give back, reboot. And I believe there's, I say to my kids when they get up roughly seven hours later, like, what are you doing? There's so much to accomplish. And anyway, I'd feel like everybody's different, but I feel like there's so many cool things to do that I do it on the weekends as well. I like to work and, you know, play golf or hang with my kids. So I know I've gotten this rhythm and I think over time you get in this rhythm of doing it such that you don't have to set an alarm and you just get going. I like I say, I'm hugely blessed. I'm even like thinking about doing a call with you like this. This is a fun business. And if we keep working on it, what's fun to try the challenge is, is a lot of fun. Fun away. I feel like I'm wasting time if I'm lying in bed. All right. So in the context of work hard, play hard, give back, reboot, you're very involved in a few philanthropic efforts. You serve as president and chairman of the board of North Star Academy, 14 charter schools in Newark, New Jersey. Why is that important to you? It's an interesting thing. I haven't told a lot of people. So when I grew up, my family, we didn't have a lot. And then my dad created a business and did really well. And then it went down. And he didn't, whatever, didn't innovate. And in any way, they went down. It was interesting because going through different eras of financial, not so good, not so good again. I've always thought about the education and things that kids get is just incredibly important, like your ability to get on the right path. And so anyway, it's always been my passion around doing things in urban education. And the amount of kids we lose through the system is just extraordinary in the United States. And, you know, it's pretty cool. You know, these schools, I'm a chair of the board of North Star in uh, Newark are big programs called Graduation Generation, a couple others in Atlanta. You know, this is really cool when, you know, you're watching these kids succeed and we go to graduation and we recently had our signing day for our kids who went to college. And it's like, I mean, it blows you away. You sit sure. in that room and you go, you know, going to Duke University full ride and just, it's incredibly powerful. And you just watch how these kids succeed in whatever, it doesn't have to be business, whatever they succeed in, but it's a very cool thing. So it keeps you going. When I first realized I wanted to get involved, I actually asked Paul Tudor Jones, where right. should I start? And he said, start in education because that is the most multiplicative. That's the superpower. I mean, you think about what you're involved with with Robin Hood, and it's amazing. And the ability, by the way, it doesn't take much in the way of resource. If you have people organized in the right way and you have the right administrators, directors, teachers, and people that are mobilized, I often find, you know, it's so different than a lot of the financial industries. People are motivated by a desire to create change. And if you get people in the right places and people that are energized to do it, like you've done with the team around Robin Hood, it's pretty extraordinary. Socially, what it creates is, is very cool. All right. So we'll close with a lightning round. This is a good one. I'm so curious. 
What's the single greatest trade you've ever made? You made a lot of them. Oh, I don't know. So I didn't, I never scaled it big enough. I mean, a professional, I think Tesla was, a, you know, we had that one pretty, you know, I remember sitting in rooms forever and listening to some of the smartest people I know, short, you know, being short. And I thought Tesla was a good try. We didn't scale it big enough. I think last year we did pretty well of getting that risk and duration. I think that worked out. Personally, at Peloton, I got in very early and I rode it up and you now so hopefully sold. <laughs> well, I sold all the way up and all the way down. And But I would say those, you know, tends to be around tech. Like I'm crazy energized about tech investments and always trying to find the new tech trade. What is the biggest lesson you've learned from a given investment? And this could be one that either went really well, as you just referenced, or perhaps one that didn't go so well. Yeah, I would say the early in my career, the one that didn't go so well, that was taught me a ton about markets. And what I said before about we're not in the business of being right, we're in the business of generating return. Like the markets spend so much time thinking through perception that we may be right. We said to people we're hiring, we, we may be right six months hence, but we may be out of bullets in the interim because people don't think you're right. And so much of like when I got long this one position, it's like we're so much in the business of anticipating what people will think is happening and what the trajectory of data and the environmental condition will look like. That was really important for me. And, you know, the difference in like when you're in school and you studied to get a 95, like we're not doing that. Like diversify, do it a lot at 70% and don't let the big one kill you. I watch more investors, traders that are good that get three right and then blow up on the fourth trade. And so anyway, that was big to me because thankfully it was early in my career. I blew up, almost blew up my whole year. And that was a corporate bond trade. Yeah. Which investor do you admire the most? I know that's a hard question to answer. I'm sure there's a handful to choose from. So you know, I'm going to give you an answer you probably don't think, but just going back to the Tesla thing, I find that people in tech, whether they're investors or not, the Elon Musk, the Steve Jobs, the Jeff Bezos, like what they're creating, Bill Gates, like they're unbelievable, like how they've thought through where the world is going. And then, so anyway, those people that I really admire in business and, and as investors in their space, those people are heroes to me. And then you mentioned one of them, Stan Druckenmiller, I think, David Tepper. I mean, I've learned more from watching them, follow them, getting, you know, an honor of talking with them that, you know, how you think about this one big thing that I think they do better than anybody I've ever seen. You separate the news from the noise. Like this industry spends so much time on noise, like this piece of data, this piece of data. And the people that I like them that I incredibly respect is say, okay, interesting, interesting. That's a big piece of news. Mm -hmm. And I think they're incredible at it. What's the best piece of advice you can give to someone that you wish you knew when you were young? I still find this interesting. Whenever I speak to our incoming classes, people don't prepare enough. And I'm pretty amazed whether they go into a marketing meeting or with a client or go into the day, the Monday morning. I find a lot of people wing it. You know, I say to people coming in, like when you're doing a media event or you're doing a client pitch, you have one shot. Mm -hmm. Like, you have to go in there thinking through what can throw you off, what is a question you didn't anticipate. And by the way, in the trading diamond, I remember I told the story when I first started trading, and I was trading corporate bonds. Every night I'd write down, everybody would go home and I'd write down, there were 375 bonds I traded. I'd write the price every single day of every one of those bonds from five to seven at night. I know why, because I thought maybe I'm just not smart enough like others. And then I felt like if I had thought about it in advance, if the market moved, I had thought about this is where this should be priced relative to that one. So I just think preparation is just huge in this industry. There are not many people I've seen that can do it on the fly. A couple, not many. Right. Last question. I know you're a big reader. So what are you currently reading or what's the best book you've read in recent years that you'd recommend? So you'll laugh. So I still find my learning curve is, I'd said it's our incoming analyst class. I think it's as steep as theirs. So I'm actually reading the David Rubenstein book. It's called Masters of Investment. I think that's the name of it. 
I don't know. It's, it's cool. I mean, I'm about halfway through and I think it's just hearing other people, how they think about, everybody's got a different style and innovation around how they think about how they invest. So I know I find that interesting, but I tend not to read investment books. It came up through a weird reason, but anyway, and I have great respect for David. So I'm reading that now, but the ones that I really like reading, as you'd imagine around tech, the Elon Musk book, there's a book called Capitalism Without Capital, Second Machine Age. Like all those things are just to think at a higher level around where the world's going. Those are the ones I like reading. Like I, I'm reading tons of research papers on AI, which are about healthcare, et cetera, but that's where I'm most focused. Rick, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. This has been a treat oh, for awesome. me. And thank you all for listening to this special episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs Great Investors. This podcast was recorded August 9th, 2023. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again, Rick. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.